What does it mean to be dull? Not dull as in boring, but dull as in thick-headed. Not able to pick up the obvious, even when it's right in front of you. We can all suffer a bit from that. I'm told I suffer a bit from that sometimes. Today we're going to see the disciples suffering from that. The disciples, the leaders of the church, the 12 that Jesus chose, or the 11 and 1 that's going to betray him, but the ones he chose, uh, we're going to see how they're dull. We're going to see how they're having trouble uh, comprehending because Jesus doesn't fit into any definition, any category that they have or we have. He's all on his own. It's a real struggle to grasp this and to grasp what it means to relate to someone like Jesus. And we have that same struggle this morning. Jesus has fed 5,000 and uh, he made the disciples get in the boat and uh, go ahead of him to Bethsaida on the other side of the uh, lake. It's about a 15-kilometre walk around the lake. Uh, he's dismissed the crowd. They're walking back. And look at what it says in verse 46. He does this, and then in verse 46, it says, After leaving them, he went up on the mountainside to pray. This Mark's gospel is actually Mark writing for Peter. It's Peter's life story of Jesus. Uh, how did Peter know this? Peter's in the boat going over to Bethsaida. How did Peter know Jesus went up on the mountainside to pray? Is this doctored? Is this not right? Or did Jesus say, I want to be alone and pray? Because he did that. We know he did that back in chapter 1. He's done that often. I want to be alone and pray. I want you guys to go ahead of me and I'll catch up to you. And is that what happened? Because Remember, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's trained them. He's trained them what is important. It's not just important to do the show. No, he's not training them that. He's actually training them with teaching, but also in praying to God and relying on God the Father. So prayer is something important to Jesus. And I think he's told Peter and the disciples, that's what he's going to do. You go ahead. I'll catch up. It's about the fourth watch at night, somewhere like 3 to 6 a.m. in the morning. It's, they're out there. There's a wild storm uh, going. Uh, they're straining at the oars. Uh, they see something like Jesus walking. Well, they thought it was a ghost. They didn't know it was Jesus. They thought it was a ghost walking on the water. Look at verse 49. When they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they saw him and were terrified. It doesn't make sense, something walking on water. It's something that you can't do. I mean, they know Jesus calmed the storm back in chapter 1. He calmed the chapter 4, sorry. They're out in the boat. Big storm came up. He was asleep in the boat. They thought they were going to drown. These are people who are used to going on the lake, grown up as fishermen. They knew it was a dangerous storm. They weren't just sort of you know, fair weather people who got upset about it. And they saw Jesus calm the storm. They knew that. But now he's gone a step further. He's not in a boat, is he? Now he's walking on the water. And what's going on for them? They're so close to Jesus. They're seeing him in every day in his human form. They see he's a human body. He has to eat. He has to go to the toilet. He can bleed. He has all the problems that we have. He's just a human. He sweats. He's got to wash. He's, he's just like us. They see that. They're living with him for three years. At this point, only about a year or 
few, you know, six months or whatever, but they know that he's human. And they know he's a really down-to-earth guy. He's not some pompous guy that wants to live in a palace. He's just going around with them wherever. He's a really down-to-earth bloke. But in fact, he's too human for them. He's too human and they're familiar with him, but they lose sight. They can't understand that he could be God. It doesn't fit at all. And in fact, they're becoming a bit stubborn. Look at verse 52. When he climbed in the boat, the wind died down. They were completely amazed for verse 52. For they had not understood about the loaves and their hearts were hardened. When Jesus fed them with the loaves, what did he do? He got the loaves, he got the fish, and he prayed to God in heaven. He gave thanks to God. And then he multiplied, and then it happened. So in their thinking, oh, Jesus is a miracle worker. He calls on God, and God works through him. None of it is attributed to Jesus. It's attributed to God working through Jesus. But suddenly he's walking on the water. What's going on here? That doesn't fit in. You know, only God can do that sort of thing. It doesn't compute. It doesn't con- a miracle worker doesn't walk on water. A great teacher doesn't walk on water. A prophet doesn't walk on water. It just doesn't fit. And they're really confused and they're terrified and they're upset. And Jesus said their hearts are hardened. They've become hardened to what they're seeing. They won't let it change their way of thinking. They're locked in to a certain perspective. They're seeing Jesus has all the power of God, but they can't accept that he could be God. They've been brought up, properly brought up. God is in heaven, way down here. God created us. When we die, we're going to go and meet with God, and that's the only time we're going to see God. God's not going to become one of us because we're the creation. He's way above us. They're rightly taught that. And some religions want to bring people up to equal with God and, and be like God, and that's wrong. And they're rightly taught God is way up there, way, way down here. But that now becomes their barrier because God's done something that is ridiculous. God's done something that no one would think God would do. God's come down in the form of his son to live in the creation he's made. And they can't understand, they rightly can't understand this. They struggle. Their hearts are hardened. They they can't have an ownership of this, an agreement to it. What's God, what's Jesus to us? I mean, I know I read about him. You've heard about him. We keep talking about him every Sunday. And, And sometimes we can just so focus on Jesus, the man, and what he did. We've got to remember he is God. He's God who's come down to earth. And we, he has a call over each and every one of us because the Bible says he was there at the beginning and he was with God the Father and the Holy Spirit when they created us and our world. And not only that, he came down to a world and he would die for us, so he actually double owns us. He made us and then he died for us so that we could be forgiven. We completely belong to Jesus. I think we all struggle to comprehend that. We all struggle to understand that. We've got the condition that the disciples are suffering from. And the disciples aren't drawing the right conclusions. They're seeing God at work, but they're not realizing that Jesus is God. 
If you go over to chapter 8, we'll see more about this because in the meantime, he's going to feed 4,000 people. And he's fed 4,000 and then something really strange happens. You can see the hardness of the disciples' hearts very clearly here. Chapter 8, verse 21, at the end of what he's going to talk about, he says to them, do you still not understand? They don't understand. They've got some sort of mental block. They can't understand. Jesus will not fit into any category, any definition, any understanding of their minds. And they just can't go beyond that. They're stuck. And look why. I go back to uh, the beginning here. He's fed the 4,000. 4, that's after the other one. And now... Jesus says in verse 15, Be careful, Jesus warned, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Um, they'd only had one loaf of bread in verse 14. And now they, when Jesus says about this yeast and stuff, they're thinking, yeast, bread? Hey, we've only got one loaf of bread. We're in trouble. Jesus is upset with us. They fail to remember that, you know, hang on, one loaf of bread amongst 12 or you know, 13 people is no big deal when he's had a couple of loaves and fed 5,000, a couple of loaves and fed 4,000. It's nothing to Jesus to make a meal out of one loaf of bread for all of them, or thousands. But for some reason they, they, they dismiss it. They haven't understood that. And what Jesus is saying is not about, they've rightly saw yeast and bread, but what Jesus wanted to see is yeast is what the Pharisees have been doing. If you go back to verse 11, this is what's just been said. And the disciples have witnessed this. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him and they asked him for a sign. So the Pharisees are badgering Jesus, they're critics, they're, they're trying to, to poke holes in, they're, they're opposing him. And Jesus is saying, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the disciples for some reason don't even see what's happening and think it's all to do with bread. They're locked into sort of a very physical thing of here and now, what we're going to eat, rather than what's going on in opposing Jesus and why Jesus came. He goes on to say, verse 17. Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? Don't you remember what I've done with the feeding of all the miracle signs I've done? Don't you remember? They're blocked. Maybe it's sensory overload. I don't know, but they just can't get past it. I'm sure it's because they've had Jesus in a, in a box in their mind that here he is, a great teacher, a great miracle worker, a man that God is working through. We'll follow this man that God is working through, but they can't go beyond that to see he's not more than a man. He's in fact God. And when will they get this? Next week, next month, next year, three years later? They won't get it till Jesus rises from the dead. Because when, when they come to Jerusalem um, and Jesus says he's gonna, this is going to happen, he's going to crucify it, Peter says, no, I won't let this happen. I've got a sword, I'll defend you. And Jesus said, you'll deny me three times before it's all over. Peter said, no, I won't. And he does. When, when Jesus dies, the disciples are all confused. The disciples are all thinking here and now. And then when Jesus rises from the dead after dying on the cross and how he died, like totally different from any other person, accepting he had to die, 
submitting to a death that he could have easily got out of by opening his mouth, but he wouldn't open his mouth in case he got out of it because he knew he had to die, taking the punishment of our sins. And when he rose again from the dead, the disciples are all confused and terrified, but then they meet Jesus and bang! It hits them like a ton of bricks. This Jesus is God. He's more than a man. He's God-made man. And finally the penny drops. But it's not going to happen until after he rises from the dead. They're still wrestling with it. Now I think they're like you and me. I think we wrestle with the whole idea of Jesus being God. It's just a big thing. It's, It's a huge thing. It's an impossible thing. It doesn't make sense. But it happened because God so loved us and it had to happen. So Jesus would come among us and we could be saved. So they've got this hardened heart. They're not drawing the right conclusions. They're resisting the obvious. You know, the parable of the 5,000 and the 4,000 was a bit like, or the feeding of the 5,000 and 4,000 was a bit like a parable, a deed parable. Something happened. And when something happened, it's going to call for two responses. Either you're going to say, wow, I want to understand more than that, you know, more here, what's happening, and trying to understand more, or it's going to say, oh, it's a show, I've seen the show, I want to move on. Disciples have seen it as a show and want to move on. They haven't sort of, hey, how did that happen? Why did that happen? What's that mean about Jesus? They haven't done that. Let's be like that first person. Keep trying to understand. Keep trying to find out what it means for us today. You and I all have a heart. You got a heart? I'm sure if, you, you know, if I got a knife and cut you open, I'd see it beaten away. We've all got a heart. Every, every living, sorry, people across the road, their hearts are not working. You know, they've died. Right? While you're alive, your heart is working. Your heart is working really hard. It's 24-7. It's really pumping away. It's going for it. We all know the importance of our human heart having blood around our body. We all know the importance of having a healthy heart. What about a healthy spiritual heart? Yeah, that heart, that sin of our emotions, of what we treasure, of what we desire, of what we crave more for, of what directs our, our whole being, our whole life, directs our words, our actions, our planning. What sort of heart spiritual heart do we want to have we want to have a heart that loves jesus a heart that treasures jesus a heart that wants more and more of jesus a heart that will not limit jesus not limit in understanding who he is or not limiting his impact on our lives it's really important to have a healthy heart and we've seen that. If we go back to the parable of Sower, we saw the third seed in the parable of Sower um, was filling the ground and started to grow and look really good. It was growing up. But then it had a problem, that third heart, a third seed. Because the third seed um, lost its effect, lost the effect of Jesus because the world around, the cares of the world, the, what's going on in the world, stopped that seed from producing fruit. You know, the effect that Jesus should have on each and every one of us is to make an impact and produce something in our life. And we saw that with the fourth seed. The fourth seed fell on the ground, but the fourth seed produced a fruit. 
And if you go over to the parallel passage in Luke, it actually explains a little bit more, which brings in the heart. Luke chapter 8, verse 16. The seed that fell on the good soil represents a good and noble heart who hears the word, retains it, and preserving in it produces fruit, preserving in the teaching. So if we've got a good and noble heart, we're going to hear what the Bible says, hear what Jesus says, and we're going to retain it. And we're going to persevere in understanding and working it out in our life, wrestling with it, growing in it. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, it says, The words of the Bible are, are like a sharp edge that penetrates to the depth of our being. You ever try to cut a tomato with a dull knife? You get a ripe tomato and a dull knife, what do you get? Squashed tomato, don't you? Yeah. You need a sharp knife. Sharp knife shuts it beautifully. You've got a nice bit of tomato to eat. Um, what's Jesus like to us? He doesn't want a dull knife. He doesn't want to be coming in crushing it. He doesn't want us to be resisting him and, and just be dull. He wants us to allow the, the sharpness of the spirit to come in and to make changes and shape our lives like the, the potter and the clay, which it talks about in the Bible. God being the potter, we being the clay. You know, the potter's got to be remain. Once the pot, pot of clay becomes hard, it's useless. But we want to be someone that's able to be moulded and shaped by God. We want to have a heart that's soft to God. Hard to sin, hard to resisting all the, the cares of the world, but soft to God and soft to each other. In the greatest commandment, what does it say? Love the God with, with all your heart, soul, body, mind. But heart... And then you also love your neighbour as yourself. If we have a heart for God, we'll have a heart for each other too. We'll love. The two go together. If you're hard-hearted, you think about yourself, you don't care about anyone else, we don't want to be like that. And we don't want to be like that with Jesus because it all starts with Jesus. If we've got a heart for Jesus, we'll have a heart for God and it'll impact their relationships with other people too. Let's be people who resist who do not resist that constant call to change and grow, to have a, a soft heart to Jesus, who love him and treasure him and just can't get enough of him. And why? Because he's God-made man. And let's never, ever be content with saying, I understand that, that's okay, I don't need to think about that anymore. I think the rest of my life while I'm on earth, before I get to heaven, I need to continue. Consider to think, what does it mean for me that Jesus is God made man? It's so big, I don't think I can ever get my mind around it this side of heaven. What about you?